0: you're listening to Make It Big, a podcast about all things e-commerce, created by Big Commerce. Hi everyone, I'm Shelley Kilpatrick, content marketing manager at Big Commerce, and I'm very excited for today's Make It Big podcast episode where we're going to be talking all about consumer spending trends with Dan Lieberman from PayPal. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you mind introducing yourself?
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Shelley. And thank you guys for having me. I have been at PayPal for just over seven years, and I lead our teams that help serve our small and medium business customers, both directly through our sales and marketing efforts, as well as through our channel partners like BigCommerce.
0: Well, we're so thankful to be a partner with PayPal. And speaking of, to get started, I'd like to give our listeners a little background. We know that over the past year, the way consumers shop has changed very much, mostly due to COVID and the pandemic. But to gain more insights on how that's kind of changed retail and e-commerce and shopping, e-commerce and PayPal teamed up to survey consumers across the globe in the US, the UK, and Australia to kind of understand these changes and help merchants adapt. So we then compiled the results together in our 2021 Consumer Spending Trends report. So I just wanted to share some of the highlights. Since March 2020, consumers are shopping more online than in person. They're also increasingly shopping on mobile. They're using social media to discover new products. They're relying on alternative payment methods like digital wallets and buy now, pay later, and this has overall led to a new hybrid customer journey, merging offline and online retail. So, really excited you're here, so we can dig into this a little bit more. How has this shift to online shopping changed the way people discover new products?
1: Well, the trend that we've seen for several years is that all of us, and we know this, you know, from our own consumer behavior as well as what the data tells us, but we are operating as consumers in between these channels seamlessly. We're Googling on our phone to discover a product while going into a store to actually look at it and then fulfilling on a direct-to-consumer e-commerce site. And we as consumers are thinking about that in a fairly seamless way. And it not only is true at the discovery stage, but all the way through into the purchase and post-purchase experiences that, that merchants are delivering To consumers. Now, one of the newest trends that I think is going to sound old to us is about how that interacts with mobile. And some of the data from the research here about 85% of consumers making a purchase on their mobile device at least once a month. And that just speaks to the universality or ubiquity of the mobile device and the role that it's playing in almost everybody's lives. And I think that, you know, that data point that talks about how much people are using mobile to shop you know, once a month, I think you're gonna start seeing once a day as the real standard there. And so capturing experiences that are easily digestible and mobile is absolutely a priority, but it's not only about mobile. It really is about these many different interaction channels that consumers and sellers find themselves in. And if you look to even the newer trends on this, which again will feel a bit old to us at this point, social media, yes, Consumed on the mobile device, but as a unique channel where you're discovering products and where you can even increasingly check out through that social platform. Well, that's just the newest version of operating in multiple different experiences and different channels. And I think we're only going to continue to see that proliferate more channels to sell, more ways of engaging different segments of consumers. And it will lead to experiences that are much more seamless and integrated, even though they are diffuse and and across multiple different channels.
0: Yeah. I like what you said about social and one of the conversations I had with some friends recently is she was talking about how she bought a new shirt because she was targeted with an ad on social. And I was like, yeah, you know, targeted ads, that's something we talk about all the time. And we're like, you know, if it's targeted correctly, we almost don't mind it as long as we're getting an ad that feels really relevant. And then to be able to actually just complete the purchase through social, it really like takes away that time you have to think about it from the moment you see the ad go on social. And then if you were to have to go to a website or go to a brick and mortar store, it just really makes it fast where you're not thinking about your purchase or like overthinking it. It just makes it so seamless and easy to be like, this is exactly what I wanted. Yes, let me buy.
1: I think that's exactly right. And I think as a culture, we've moved past the phase of thinking that the level of, you know, as you say, targeted ads is creepy or is an invasion of our privacy because I think there are ways that we're being engaged as consumers that feel more like it's a benefit, it's relevance, and it's being presented not in a intrusive way, but in a value-added way. And I think th- the flip side of that is, more and more merchants understand that. More and more sellers understand this isn't, you know, something that consumers aren't looking for. They're actually they are engaging with this content in a very productive way, and and merchants now are are less hesitant to engage their consumers in those channels. Uh, and so I think it's a very unique trend that we're all still learning about because it's evolving so quickly.
0: Yeah, it's really exciting, you know, to be in e commerce and see these things happen, and see it from the consumer perspective, and then you know from big commerce, we're an e commerce platform, so you know talking about it all day at work, and then having conversations with friends, it's just amazing how it's so integral into you know our lives and my life.
1: That's right, and that the surprises are endless too. I mean, within the PayPal ecosystem, what the behaviors we see on Venmo are very interesting. And I use that word as someone who doesn't share with the full public community all of my transactions on Venmo, because that part of the value prop for me, I'm not sure, you know, I want everybody to know everything that I'm buying or, or trading with my friends. But there are millions of consumers that are using it as exactly that, and they want that shared experience. And they're looking to share that with their friends and with their family and learn about what people are buying and and how people are exchanging money. And so there's just a lot of different social behaviors that, you know, to some of us are, are tough to understand in the first instance, but you see the usage and it doesn't matter about whether I understand it's about there's demand in the market. There is a massive pull into these channels and, you know, we've been on top of it for several years at PayPal and really seeing, you know, the benefit to our merchants in the last couple of years here is, is powerful.
0: Venmo is such an interesting one because it started as peer-to-peer where it's like, I ordered food for my friends at lunch and instead of us splitting the check, it's like, oh, I'll Venmo you. It's become so synonymous with I'll pay you back. We don't even say that anymore. We say, I'll Venmo you (laughs) or are you going to Venmo me?
1: That's right. We like that. We like that trend a lot that it becomes synonymous with these more uh, common actions. But you're exactly right. And you think about the parallel there to PayPal you know starting as a peer to peer tool a social tool and building off of that as as a real trusted payment network that can be used in a lot of different ways and i think it's just another example of these social enabled experiences are kind of the genesis of e-commerce connecting endpoints in a digital way and it just continues to proliferate in different ways across the ecosystem
0: I know, such an exciting time. Are there any maybe surprising trends by industry that you're noticing at PayPal? I know y'all do a lot of great research into different industries, like who's really embracing Venmo, who is really embracing social, any insights into that?
1: Yeah, there's definitely faster movement in digitizing these experiences in multiple channels. If you're in kind of traditional retail goods type products especially things like fashion where there's an ability to incrementally target a consumer that you know kind of fits a certain demographic type through these audience targeting social channels and so I do think you've seen faster innovation in the way in which sellers engage their consumers in some of those more traditional retail goods verticals and then there's others that are still going through the basics of digitization we are focused a lot This year on bill pay and helping platforms in the space, as well as large government and other billing entities, revolutionize their billing systems. And I think this is a place where, again, as consumers, we all can relate to that. It's a pretty confusing world of you set up auto pay on some sites, some places you still have to pay a check, another one you can do through your bank, but sometimes it works. And is that auto pay or is it not? And it's tough to look at that world and believe that it's been fully Digitized and revolutionized. And we are playing a very active role in that with some selective partners and also building in the consumer experience in our properties on the PayPal app that will allow people to aggregate bill pay. Now, it's a very self serving comment to make sure people know about that, but it just represents that we believe, to your question, there are industries, there are verticals that are massive, big industries that affect consumers' lives at scale that. Really need basic help in digitizing what they do. And they will take advantage of the more edgy elements of our ecosystem as, you know, as retailers are and others are engaging in social things like that over the coming years. But there's still some foundational work to do in other services and, and non retail industries that is critical for us to, to continue digitizing the economy.
0: That's so funny you mentioned Bill Pay. I'm not saying this like disclaimer, it's not like a sponsored ad where I'm trying to talk up PayPal. <laughs> I just personally found it's literally so easy to set up having things be auto-paid that I had my Spotify and I think it was my Hulu that were paid through a credit card. And I got a new cell phone. And so logging in, it was really difficult. And then I was like, okay, now I have to go get my card. It Feels like it's so much effort. Then it was the option is there, and it's like, oh, connect to PayPal. Great. When I transferred all of my data from one phone to the other, I was able to just be like, yep, set that up. And my favorite is that it connects to my bank account, which the information isn't going to change. I can get five new credit cards because it's been compromised in some way, or I left it somewhere, or I just don't have it on me. It's in my other purse but my bank account is always the same. It's not going to change. It just makes it so much easier to know that it's just auto-paying through that. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about it. As a consumer, that's just one of the things I personally love.
1: I mean, we haven't paid you, but maybe we should because uh, that, that is about as fundamental as it gets in terms of thinking about the role of our consumer network and how powerful the, the wallet value proposition is, bringing things together into a common place where you can navigate between funding types, where you can access credit when you need it, where you can have other financial tools. And so I think you know, PayPal, we believe, is certainly you know in a leading position to do that. But I think the more general point that is less self-serving to PayPal directly is it is important for sellers to be thinking about the endpoints in the consumer network that they're accessing. And that involves that choice of where they sell and the depth and specificity and relevance of the end consumer and being thoughtful and intentional about where you want to invest to go access those big nodes of networks is, I think, a very important challenge for businesses to take on and to think about it regardless of what vertical they're in. And so it's related to a lot of topics in this space about how you think about where you sell and the tools you use to sell and how you drive demand. So I think we could follow that rabbit hole quite far but I'll let us move to your next question before I do that. We
0: could, but the next rabbit hole I want to get into one that I think is really interesting is, well, we just talked about it, payment methods. Obviously, if a place offers PayPal, I'm like, yes, or even Apple Pay. That's also one that we've started using a lot for takeout and I can just pay with Apple Pay. And then I don't have to enter in all of my information. So we ordered, um, there's a new place that just opened up down the street, Little Ola's Biscuits. If you're in Austin, fantastic. But to backtrack, we were ordering it on Saturday and um, you know, placed the order and it was like, oh, use Apple Pay. So I just hit the Apple Pay button, does the face ID, sends the order. I didn't have to enter in my first name, my last name, my phone number, my email address, all of that information that just is inconvenient. So digital wallets, Apple Pay. To backtrack to the actual question, (laughs) the report we found that 70% of consumers are more likely to spend at a retailer that offers their preferred payment method. So let's dive into some of those trending payment options we're seeing, specifically digital wallets and buy now pay later. So One of the most frequent questions we get from merchants is How many payment methods should they offer? Do you offer fewer options to keep the checkout page straightforward? Or do you offer every possible option in the world, including cryptocurrency, so that consumers like me who like convenience have flexibility? So, Dan, settle the debate once and for all. What should they do?
1: The answer is both. But let me explain how that's even possible, because it is a good question. We can all picture as, you know, for a business that wanted to sell globally, if you were to present every payment type that's relevant and every market around the world you want to sell in, it would be a very long page of payment choices that would surely drive down conversion. And we've seen this in some use cases, but most merchants would just refuse to do that in the first place because they know intuitively that is not a good experience for their consumers. But nonetheless... You know that if you want to be in France, you have to be able to present carte bancaire, the local debit scheme. And if you don't do that, there are 35% of your customers that may not check out. Now, I'm embellishing the numbers here for effect, but there are payment types that are unique to individual markets around the world and unique to certain segments of consumers, even within a market, that become relevant at scale to merchants. And so you can't just ignore the ones you haven't heard of. So how do you do both? How do you have few choices, but all choices? And the key is you have to pick a provider that can do that for you, that can use data to present the right kind of checkout option to the consumer based on the measurable criteria that they can intake through the checkout process. Geolocation, vaulted information about payment types, cookies, And there are multiple ways that you can triangulate to get to the right payment type. But the key is that you do have a partner who can present whatever the right payment type is at the right moment to the right customer. Of course, that's what PayPal specializes in. It is part of our broader offering beyond just presenting the PayPal wallet. We have what we have called uh, smart payment buttons that allow us to present these other payment types that exist in, in many markets around the world. And so I do think that that is the future. And that is where our partners and our merchants will go. And it will enable the same kind of things that you're asking about in terms of crypto and other forward-looking payment types that no merchant should ever have to worry about whether they're going to go incorporate Bitcoin or Etherpay or whatever else comes. They should trust that there's a partner that's going to do that in the back end and be able to present that experience on their behalf if and when it becomes relevant.
0: So it's almost kind of like the ads we were just talking about, where it's like, with the data you have on me, present the right product, and now we're taking it to the next level where it's like, okay, now also present the right payment method. Correct. Kind of scary, you know, with all the data stuff, but I still think it's so fascinating.
1: To the previous conversation about that, it can feel like, wow, that's a lot of knowing about me, but the question for the consumer is, is it valuable to them? Does it make their life easier? And that right product with that right payment type that is the one that they would prefer to use is a much better experience than having to go and click in card information every single time and go through the friction of that. So getting that right is, I believe, of clear value to the consumer in a way where that feels great, that value exchange. And it there isn't some creepy side effect of it either, in my opinion. I think it really is to drive that that experience, that transaction, and so I I think that we're seeing a more widespread acceptance of that, and, and that's a good thing for both sellers and for consumers.
0: I think so too, because you can kind of imagine it like if a brand would be your friend, you would tell your friend things about you, you would have conversations, they would get to know you, and then on your birthday, you would hope they would get you a gift that's really relevant and something that you love. So it's almost the same thing with brands. We're giving them this information about us. We're sharing this data in the hopes that they get us a gift, which is something we love, which is the convenience of showing me the right product, give me the right payment method, give me a relevant discount, know that it's my birthday and you're you know sharing all of that with me. So I think that's a good way to look at it.
1: You, you got some good friends, Shelley. Your friends give you gifts. My friends might give me recommendations of products that they like. And then make me buy it myself or buy it from them. But the analogy holds up because I would want my friends to tell me about the best TV or the best shoes. And I, and I do, they do tell me. And if they were selling it to me, I'd want them to take my preferred way of paying rather than theirs. When my friends ask me to write them a check, I'm like, PayPal or Venmo are both very widely accepted. Is that an option? And they usually say yes, of course. But it's it, it is analogous to that seller interaction. And it, it does kind of tie back to our point about social interactions in general. All these things that, you know, are data-driven presentment of content and payment type, it gets you closer to the customer. It's it's a better experience. It's more informed. It's like a social interaction in that way. And I think we're starting to see that. We're starting to, you know, build relationships with brands that feel more niche, that you feel like they attend to you a bit more than just the mass market and I think it's on the back of this kind of ability to understand your customer and actually respond to them the way friends do, the way people do with, in a barter economy. It does start to replicate some of that emotional context between a buyer and a seller. So it's it's really, you know, this is existential stuff, Shelly, but uh, it, we, we could talk more tactically as well, too.
0: <laughs> we go deep at the Make It Big podcast. But speaking of, we talked about, you know, using... Digital wallets online. One of the things that we found in the report, which I thought was fascinating, was the use of them in store. And this is where maybe I age myself in that I haven't really used them in store. But I think it was Australia that it was like much more popular. And our VP of product, Megan Stabler, she's talked about how in the UK, where she was just in London recently, they're all about the digital wallets, like you just take out your phone. So how can merchants ensure they're offering that payment flexibility in store as well? And how important is that?
1: It's a very interesting question. And it does intersect with pandemic-related trends of consumer behavior in store. And so there's a lot of change going on. But it's not all totally brand new. And you know, you could go through a long history of different types of wallets and use cases in a physical environment. And what you'd see is, 20 years ago, in Hong Kong, there's something called the octopus card, which is a way of paying with your phone to get onto the subway and paying in convenience stores. And it was an in-store digital wallet that, in my estimation, was wildly successful. And those kinds of examples exist in other markets around the world. And it's happened in multiple markets around the world at different points in time. What you've seen in the United States is, until recently, the incremental convenience, the incremental benefit of, you know, tapping your phone wasn't really that valuable to people. Paying with a card was easy enough. And there's, you know, other private label cards that people used with certain retailers that they really preferred and had benefits with. And so there's there's those kinds of legacy experiences that just weren't disrupted. But we are really seeing a difference in the era of more contactless interactions. And while I think It appeared for a while the trend was heading towards those phone-based tap-and-pay experiences. You mentioned Apple Pay through an NFC chip. There's other experiences that are also gaining traction in a very unique way, too. You know, If you think about what that tap-and-pay is, it's not truly contactless. You're kind of still reaching out and you're still close to the, the cashier. Well, PayPal has really invested a lot in examining QR codes as an alternative where you are not close to that customer. And the QR code experience in store, while even to somebody like me may have seemed like a long shot in a market like the U.S., even though it exists at scale in many markets around the world, what you're seeing is you go into a restaurant these days and you will scan a paper QR code on the table and you'll enter what is essentially an e-commerce experience. And now you're ordering and checking out and paying through your phone in a store, in a restaurant. And that's a nice example of a hybrid experience that kind of takes e-commerce and turns it into in-store and a digital wallet in that environment is just as useful as in an e-commerce environment. It drives conversion, you don't have to click in the numbers. And and so it's very easy to see how that use case becomes newly relevant, especially in a market like the US where all of this is is kind of new. Um, But I think it would be foolish for me to represent this as, as even near the end of the story. I mean, we are in the middle of the disruption of what this can all be in terms of these in-store experiences and hybrid between our browsing behaviors on our phone and at home and the shopping and, and eating and, and other experiences in physical locations. And so I think it's just going to continue to evolve in ways that surprise us. And and so I think, you know, if I'm a seller in that environment and I think about how important it is for me to revolutionize my in-store business around this. I think it's very important to participate in it so you can figure out what works for your business, because there are a lot of different solutions out there. But I also would advise people to not reject solutions that may have previously seemed unusual, like QR codes. I mean, Shelly, you're laughing about it, but.
0: Oh, I'm laughing because I remember back in, I want to say 2012, 2013, when QR codes became a thing and marketers and my job, I think we were exhibiting at like a B2B trade show. And it was like, put a QR code, QR codes are the next big thing. And then I want to say it was like a year later and nobody was talking about QR codes. We laughed about how it was like, such an outdated concept and then you're right I'm laughing too because I am now that person who at the restaurant is like yay I can just do the QR code I love the idea that you brought up of as a consumer I can go to the store and browse on my phone or check out or have that convenience I wonder just me thinking is it because in 2012 2013 we didn't have the same mobile technology that we had today that makes it work so well like we have 5G now I remember shopping in store at some places. I'm that person who's in the store like, I must look up the coupon code while I'm in the store and the internet's not working. And then I'm like, I'm frustrated. I have to have coupon code. So maybe the QR code is kind of like, now that we have internet in so many places and it's so much easier to access on our phone, that experience can be a thing now.
1: I think that that's one of several reasons. I think this is, you know, QR codes, even throughout the... Patchy history of them existing in the U.S. And, and and other markets. They have been very popular in certain Asian markets throughout. They've been used to drive commerce experiences. You know, I remember uh, one that was particularly clear in my mind in subway stations. There were lots of QR codes that were driving purchases of you know in transit items. People would then go to a, a a kiosk and get the item they had scanned. On their phone and so there was kind of an early version of a hybrid experience and so th- there's been this growing of it on a global basis but i think what really is powerful about it now is one it can provide a truly contactless experience that that you know representation of a payment type or of, a, of an order code can sit separate from a cashier or even absent a cashier or anybody in the store and so there's there's a true remote nature to it that's also not dependent necessarily on complex technology. Even though it looks like a kind of complicated image, you can print it out. You can post these static QR codes and it doesn't require a battery or an internet connection to initiate that reaction and that relationship with the customer, whether it's for an offer that you're walking by or to start an e-commerce experience or to pay. But I do think you're right that once you're in our phone, you need high processing power, connectivity, in order to, to really see that work at scale. And I do think that it's coinciding with broader availability of not just 5G, but but internet more broadly. And I think that on that basis, you're going to see better experiences that give people believership that these things really can work and, and should work at scale. The only other thing that's worth mentioning is I think there's power in the democratization that it offers in the sense that it is device agnostic, Okay. The tap and pay experience is you're in a chip on a particular phone. And when you externalize that and you make it a code that can be scanned, you now are in control more of of how you choose to engage with that versus it being coded hard into your hardware. And so I think that provides a flexibility, especially on the seller side, to be able to say, well, I have one strategy to engage my customer, whether they have an Android phone or an iOS or a Microsoft phone or whatever. And they then only kind of have to solve it once rather than solve for so many different consumer use cases.
0: And like you said, it cannot be easier to create and print a QR code. We were doing a webinar and one of the speakers was like, oh, I've been having this great success with adding QR codes to the webinar. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a lot of work. And she was like, no, you just go into your Chrome browser. There's a little square button. It's create QR code. And then you hit download. And that is it. It takes two seconds. And you can have it be any web page on your site. So like you said, that's great for merchants to use. If they want to promote a discount, they can promote it online and in store. It doesn't have to be this different thing where, okay, in store, we're going to do this. And it doesn't have to be me as a consumer walking around Googling discount for this retailer. It's there on a sign. So Once again, me talking about convenience.
1: That's exactly right.
0: All right. So we've talked about digital wallets, QR codes. Now we're going to dive into my personal favorite, which is buy now, pay later. It blew my mind that it was 10% of people had used buy now, pay later five or more times in the past three months. Like that seems like such a short amount of time to use it that frequently. To me, it feels like a lot. So what do you think it is about Buy Now, Pay Later that makes it so attractive to consumers? Who's using it? Why are they using it? Tell us everything.
1: Sure. I'll, I'll first acknowledge, like you, Shelley, and like my previous story about sharing on Venmo, this was something that I, as a consumer, couldn't relate to individually. To me, when I learned about the early stages of Buy Now, Pay Later several years ago, it's you know, another credit product that maybe has a place. And it has clearly proven itself to be more important, more relevant, faster growing than really any kind of product in this space that I've seen in a long time. And so you're asking the right question as to why is that? Well, let me start with, I think, the value prop in a general sense, which is credit without the confusing nature of what credit can be at times, interest rates and kind of unpredictable payback periods... And total cost of of a loan is is a confusing thing. And when you're buying a nice handbag, that's not really math that you want to do. And it sounds daunting. And there are simpler structures. And these very simple pay-in-three, pay-in-four type solutions are clearly resonating with consumers in a way where they are voting with their purchases. And these numbers are staggering, as you mentioned. The one that really caught me was the 10% was huge of those that have really deeply engaged five or more times. But f- the fact that almost half, 46% of consumers using it at least once, that's a level of basic relevance that you know I don't know what the number was a year ago, but it was a lot lower than that. And so it's catching fire. And I think that in addition to the simply put terms around it, Are beautiful experiences and they're integrated into the ways that consumers are starting to shop. And so, you know, to use the PayPal analogy here, the way that we have built Buy Now, Pay Later is on the back of the wallet and the experiences that our consumers already know and trust. It's not some other credit card that they need to apply for, it's part of their relationship with PayPal. And the same is true on the merchant side. You don't have to go do a separate integration, we offer it as part of our checkout integration. And we also offer an extension to be able to promote it upstream. So customers know that they can do pay in three or pay in four, and they can therefore potentially shop more on that basis. So we believe very strongly in this value proposition, even if I was a skeptic a few years ago. And it's incredibly powerful driver of lift for merchants in both conversion and basket size. And so it's really an important thing to continue investing in as a merchant, but like with the multiple payment types, I think there's a real argument that you gotta pick a partner that can do that all for you. And again, of course, this is what PayPal does, is we bundle it all together so merchants and partners only need to have that one relationship to present these different choices to their consumers. And yes, there are other providers out there with really solid products, but there's this extra integration effort to do an additional provider It's a trade-off for for sellers to consider. So we think we're in a great position to help across the board.
0: Well, you know how much I love PayPal products, obviously. I
1: sure do, (laughs) Shelly.
0: So one of the things that I thought was really interesting was kind of breaking it down by generation um, and how, uh, again, to age myself, I am what I've heard is an elder millennial.
1: Mm. That is not the most flattering term I've heard, but.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Elder, millennial. I'm like, all right. So, okay. But, you know, the millennial generation, like we kind of came around when debt was this very scary thing, mostly related to student loans. I had a friend who she had no credit. She was like, no credit cards, paid off debt, had no credit whatsoever. How is buy now, pay later different than credit? And why do you think it might resonate better with millennials and now Gen Z?
1: It's related to what we were talking about in terms of the simplification of what you're doing when you're paying over time. And what you see is, you know, just as one example, the... $100 item that you might buy and spread over four payments. They explicitly tell you the fee that you will pay to do that. And it's not an interest rate that you have to calculate. It will say it's four payments of $26 and that includes a $1 fee each each time. And so it's a much more digestible message around what it costs to defer payment. And I think That's one piece of it. The other piece of it, as you look at not only PayPal, but some of the other providers in this space is the experiences that surround that. And you see what we're doing with shopping is similar to what some of the other wallets are doing around how do you tie together what you learn about a consumer, what they show they are interested in purchasing, but also what is deserving of deferring payment And you can promote offers both about credit, maybe with no fees, as well as other product promotions to those customers directly. And so it's about the ecosystem of services that surround it. And in that way, I think what you'll see is this is just one component of what you were talking about of certain generations engaging with not traditional platforms to live their financial life, to live their commerce life. And... I think there's still a huge role for banks to play. You know, Most of us still are going to engage with banks in many forms, but there are certain sub-segments of of various generations that don't want to do a traditional loan, that don't want to use a credit card, don't want these kinds of open-ended debt commitments that they fit better with this type of value proposition for discrete spending needs against particular products. And so I think it's something that, again, we're going to continue to see different demographic trends around who uses this but for sure you're right that the younger generations that really came into their commerce maturity and their financial life maturity around the financial crisis and after it there was more hesitation to engage with traditional brands and traditional products and that did create the fertile ground for these other types of relationships that PayPal and others are beneficiary of now, but it's it's definitely an evolving story and one that I think you know is going to be very interesting to pay attention to.
0: Yeah, definitely paying attention. And one of the things that I also thought was really interesting was that it was more popular in Australia. Do you know why that
1: is? Australia is one of the markets of innovation in this category. There have been companies that were focused in the Australian market as a starting point that really grew on the basis of that. And so I think you've seen just a longer history of consumer engagement with these offerings in that market than in many other markets. And I expect other markets to catch up and to mirror the kind of penetration of buy now, pay later that you've seen in Australia. And so I I don't think Australia is unique over a long period of time, but I do think they've had a first mover advantage or a kind of early mover dynamic that's seen much greater penetration of these offerings both online and in store.
0: I think that brings up a really good point. And it kind of relates back to what you said earlier about, I think you said it was Hong Kong and the octopus and how it's really important to pay attention to what's happening outside of the US to see what these upcoming trends are going to be, to see what consumers are doing, to see, oh, in Australia, they're really into this buy now, pay later. In China, they're really more into live streaming commerce. In all these different markets, there's all these trends that are happening that maybe aren't popular in the US. Oh, QR codes, which is one we talked about that hasn't quite hit yet, but to really maybe stay ahead of the curve, ahead of your competition, be like, what are consumers outside of the US doing? And what you know might be relevant here that you can be on top of or just understand what's going on so you can quickly adapt when it does hit and you can be on the forefront of that instead of playing catch up
1: I think you're exactly right and like you and I were confessing before some of those things that we as as consumers observe in a single market Don't tell the whole story about different models, different experiments that are taking place around the world that some of which are working and some of which have not yet made it to other markets. But I do think keeping an open mind to how these models can evolve and making sure you're building your business with partners that can be as flexible and as broad in what they do for you as possible is a key way to stay in front of those trends because it is daunting to think about how you future-proof your whole business across all of these different demand generation opportunities, your technology stack, and how you think about your own different tools operating, fulfillment. There's a lot of innovation across the entirety of the value chain. And I do think that while paying attention to all the lessons globally helps us stay in the loop of, of innovation, it is tough as a business owner to go in and have to handle that yourself and, and and integrate that and manage that yourself and so it's critical to have trusted partners that you can uh, rely on to bring you not only the basics to manage your business but to, to basically keep you future proofed
0: i think that's definitely one of the things that we strategically focus on at big commerce is helping our merchants you know that's that's our number one Value prop is customers first. And I think that's one of the things that I love about working here and what we do really well is think about how we can bring these insights to our customers and curate it for them. I mean, we're having this podcast hoping that, you know, our merchants will hear something and learn something and take away something that they can apply to their businesses and in content that's one of the things i love most about my job is i can learn something and hopefully share it with someone else who can learn something and then also make it valuable for their business and be able to like implement it and do it and be successful i think that's one of the things i love most about working at big commerce and what i do that's right so more people are shopping online some people actually prefer the in-store experience though. So, we're back, you know, with some restrictions in some places. E-commerce has grown. There's obviously so many things I can say. So, what is the key takeaway for merchants from what all the things we've talked about and creating that seamless offline online shopping experience?
1: Anybody that says that retail presence isn't is dying? It's, it's a misstatement about the importance of a physical presence in a balanced world of physical and digital experiences. While the trend lines show more and more commerce is taking place digitally, but I still think we're 20% or less is, is happening in digital channels. 80% of commerce is still happening in, in you know, physical channels. And, and this is in developed markets. Um, it's even you know less than that in many of the growing markets around the world. And so it is, of course, hugely relevant to still engage with consumers in a physical channel. But I think the new horizon is really about the interaction between channels and the nimbleness of being a seller that has product or services that are being coordinated and delivered across different channels. And the channels themselves can start to play different roles with each other. So more specifically, as it relates to businesses that have a existing physical retail experience, well, there's a very powerful need for people to take delivery, to experience, to be interacting with the physical product, not only to finalize a purchase, but also to literally take delivery of it and to deal with returns and repairs and other services issues. And so I think the the short way of putting it is physical retail is increasingly about that fulfillment experience and that post-transaction set of benefits that you can deliver to customers more than it used to be and more than I think it's about browsing and discovery. And so I do think that's where engaging in a, you know, this word's used a lot, but an omni-channel strategy Where you think about discovery across all channels, you think about purchase across all channels, and you do think about fulfillment in this kind of hybrid way, I think that's where where merchants can really focus and get some value. Now, if if I had to narrow it further than that and say, what is one thing that some businesses are not taking advantage of amid these channels that they could more immediately? It's something we call BOPIS, which is a fun name for buy online, pick up in store. And Boris is bopus's brother, and Boris is buy online return in store. And they're both relevant to this question in the sense that if I had to prioritize, you know, how to use a physical space most, it would be to buy online pickup in store. To make sure that you are creating the linkage between an online sales channel and your physical presence and, and allowing that pickup, what it will force you to do is resolve the inventory management, and kind of real time payment issues that you have to overcome with your partners in order to be able to provide this kind of seamless experience. And so while it sounds like a fairly straightforward concept, it's a precise one that I think will allow some merchants to overcome some of these challenges as quickly as possible. And then I think I actually would, you know, Boris is is my second favorite son. I think the return experiences are important but less important than the purchase experiences. And so if you have to prioritize, I I would prioritize buy online, pick up in store, and I'd market that to your customers and talk about it as a way of how you can engage with the product. And it helps build trust with your buyers. You can talk about no shipping fees. You can talk about the way you can deal with returns as that fits in as well. And so I think there's a lot of ways to tell that story. that can be a big benefit to merchants without having to Get through every challenge of going omnichannel in the first instance.
0: I 100% agree with everything you just said. When it comes to omnichannel, big commerce, we have a lot of our messaging is a four pillar approach. So it's about your sales channels, your marketing. But it's also, like you said, about fulfillment and shipping and delivery. Those are two things that sometimes get put in the background of the conversation because we're all so focused on sales channels and that's omni-channel. But it's like, no, it's about the end-to-end experience and fulfillment is such an important piece. And I cannot tell you as a consumer how many times I have used buy online, pick up in store and how it has made things so much easier for me. We were going out of town and we realized we had no dog food left. And we were like, oh no, we're leaving tomorrow. We have like an hour before all the stores close to get dog food. We don't have time to drive around to every single one to see if they have this super specific brand that we buy for our very special dogs. So that's exactly what we did was go online and be like, okay, who has it in stock? And then, great, place the order, and we can go pick it up. And that just made it so much easier. So yeah, that that part of the experience, I love. You know, product discovery on the phone, but then pickup and fulfillment in the store. And then sometimes it's led to shopping in the store.
1: That's the cross-sell, right? And if they really knew you, Shelly, they would present to you exactly the products that they knew you wanted as a promo in your digital wallet as you entered that store. So it's all heading there. It really is. And and I, I think um, we all have those same experiences and it, it does help illuminate that it is impossible to picture a world where that physical retail experience isn't critical, right? You need that dog food. You don't have 24 hours to get same day shipping even, right? And so you need those moments and that's just, you know, that will never go away. You'll never have those things go away. And yet there still are use cases in, in physical Stores that I think are going to be very innovative, and part of my hope through the pandemic and through what essentially has turned into a commercial real estate depression, and and you know the physical retail spaces are are, are not in favor now. Perhaps the economics of physical retail will change. And, you know, a lot of businesses have shut down as rents have gone up, and and they just haven't been able to sustain on the basis of of rent. And it's possible that this shift in certain geos. Will allow for businesses to economically engage in a retail channel again. And so that's a little bit hopeful and and, and, and forward looking, but I do think it is just another example of kind of staying in touch with the different channels that that are out there, understanding the costs of engaging with them and and the types of customers you can engage in them. And there there should be no sacred elements that we that we think are permanent, right? Retail is is. Has been declining but that can change based on the cost of that channel and what it means so there's there's a lot of different things to pay attention to and and, and i hope we collectively help our customers wade through that through conversations like this and through the way we we help them day to day
0: nice i i second that i i love shopping at small businesses and that's like one of my favorite things to do is go find local shops um here in austin and Spend my money there and really support local businesses. And, you know, it's been somewhat sad when they've closed. Um, But then it's been exciting when I find a new small business that's online only and someone else I can support and they don't have to be where I live. So I think just small businesses in general are, you know, I could talk forever about how much I love so many of the small local businesses here in Austin and specifically some that are like big commerce merchants that I get excited to shop at but I think we're we're close to time we've you know had such a great conversation we've shared so many insights this has been so much fun for me so one last question what are a couple of key takeaways you would like to leave listeners with today
1: I think the thread that has has cut through everything we've talked about is really about ensuring that Sellers are building themselves a hub that allows them to sell wherever they want. And that they're not building their business in a way that requires them to replicate that effort each time they want to sell in a new place. And so that is another way of saying a holistic platform solution, an omni-channel strategy. There's a lot of different terms we can throw around. But what it really does mean is you know, trusting partners like Big Commerce who can be that hub, working with partners like PayPal who can help navigate money, financial services, commerce services across those spokes within that hub. That that is going to be an easier way to engage in these selling points than to go and individually build a marketplace listing over here and another one over here and another one over here, and then have your web store as a separate thing, and then maybe you have a a, a physical shop. That, In order to grow together, in order to meet customers' expectations, we've been talking about it a lot. These things have to interact seamlessly. I am an individual customer who may start in one channel and finish in another. But maybe more importantly is for every customer like me that hits these different channels, there are millions of customers in individual channels that you may uniquely only get through those channels. And so you've got to spread your wings and and, and be willing to sell in multiple places as you grow and to address different customer audiences in new ways without carrying the burden of new technology investment, new integrations, and kind of minimizing the friction of each incremental place. And so I think that is the most important part for businesses that haven't already done so.
0: Profound, that was great. All right, Dan, well, thank you again so much for being here on the Make It Big podcast. I have absolutely enjoyed our conversation this afternoon. I'm gonna go shop and spend money on PayPal right now.
1: (laughs) That's what we like to hear. Shelly, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Make It Big podcast. Want even more insights and expert advice? Experience our Make It Big Conference, now available on demand. You'll get e-commerce tips and strategies from global thought leaders like Mark Cuban, Ann Handley, and Neil Patel, plus big commerce partners like Google, TikTok, and more. Watch today at bigcommerce.com slash make it big.